Hi, I'm Natalie from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm Zach from Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, I'm Kent from Denver. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me. If you'd like to support the show like I did, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is Simon Reynolds. He's a music writer who's written most extensively about uh, electronic-influenced music and electronic-influenced rock music, including uh, one of the seminal books about post-punk rock and roll called Rip It Up and Start Again, the seminal history of rave in the 1990s, and now he's the author of Retromania, Pop Culture's Addiction to Its Old Past. It's about the almost complete lack of anything new aesthetically, particularly in the world of music and particularly in the world of rock music in the past 10 years and what that means for our cultural future. Simon, welcome back to The Sound of Young America. Thanks for having me back on the show. First, let's start by defining what retro is. What's the difference between retro and, say, you know, neoclassicism uh, why is Lenny Kravitz re- retro and the Washington Monument is not? Well, I think, obviously, it's within living memory is, is one of the definitions of retro re- retro culture, whether it's fashion designers, you know, being inspired by the mod look or 1920s fashion. It's usually, usually these revivals happen sort of with it when there are still people around who can actually remember these things when they were the first a la mode, you know. And same with music, you know, um, usually you know it doesn't go much further than the 50s further back and i think you know i think that, i don't think there's anything wrong with being inspired by history or the past i mean that's obviously there is tons of this stuff shakespeare's plays were often based on old stories or legends or whatever but there was a huge you know his execution of them was markedly different he really took it somewhere else and i think the same applies to, to what the beatles and the stones did with blues you know it was the starting point Rock and roll and blues was the starting point for those bands, but they really, you know, took it somewhere else. Where is the birth of this? As I was reading the book, I, I coincidentally ran across a short film shot by the um, fashion photographer and, and fine art photographer Bruce Weber of a sort of aging teddy boys in England, which was this rock and roll subculture in the uh, 1950s, particularly. Um, that just as rock and roll was coming to England from the United States, these these guys had this rock and roll culture that was built around Edwardian aesthetics. Mm-hmm. I can't think of another self-consciously retro aesthetic movement that predates. I mean, that's the we're talking about the mid to late 1950s. And I don't think there was anything like that going on in the United States at that time that wasn't just, you know, people getting old and liking the stuff they liked when they were a kid. The rock and roll thing is interesting because, as, as you mentioned, um, the Teddy Boys had this influence. The name comes from Edwardian, from, uh, you know, Teddy, short for Edwardian style. And the, it was these working class hoodlums in, in London who actually were copying a style 
of clothing that was worn by more upper class people, often ex-military people in the late 40s. It was like an aesthetic that was that was promulgated by Savile Row tailors at the time. Yeah, they were, so they were basically doing this classic thing, which is actually a, kind of like a mod thing, which is to appropriate the look of the ruling class. Uh, and it's kind of insubordination within the class system. You're like dressing improperly. But then it quickly became the look of scary hoodlum youth, you know, people who might have a, a, a flick knife and who, who then when rock and roll came would, would be the people, you know, tearing up the cinema seats. The real sort of push forward, like a, a, a lot of things in contemporary popular culture, came as the baby boomers came of age in the late 1960s. You pick back in the USSR as kind of a starting point. I think that's, that's the funny thing is I think the Beatles were the band who did most to sort of promulgate the idea of, you know, constant change. You know, every album they were leaping forward. They were embracing the new possibilities of the studio. They were, you know, they were quite sort of trend-hopping. You know, they kind of helped to popularise the trends, but they were also jumping on them. And they, were the, they helped to start the trend of looking back. They were the, pretty much the first people, I think, to sort of hark back to rock and roll. Back in the USSR has the... Chuck Berry reference. It has a sort of early Beach Boys thing in there as well. You know, it sort of became like a really retro y thing to do. You had Zappa did his. Um, a doo wop uh, album. Yeah, though, cruising with Ruben and the Jets. So he was very on it early. And then it really becomes like, with glam, um, it really becomes, a lot of glam was based around, glam and glitter music was based around 50s rock and roll imagery. There was a whole lot of songs wistfully looking back to the sort of idea that the early days of rock and roll was more innocent, more wild. You know. If you think of The Day the Music Died by Don McLean, it's sort of like the ultimate example of that kind of borderline kitsch nostalgia. Well, it is. It, I think it was kind of very heartfelt, though. Like It was more like he was trying to write about the journey of having started with rock and roll and gone through all the adventures of the 60s. Every verse in that song refers in allegorical, coded form to, you know, Hendrix and Dylan. I think it was heartfelt, although it does, you know, certainly there's a kitschy aspect to it now. There's this point that by by the end of the 1960s, there is a mainstream reflection of the uh, that idea of retro nostalgia um, that I don't think had really ever existed, at least in the mainstream before. I mean, if you think of like Sha Na Na and Happy Days, I think are probably the two... 19, 19, late 1960s, mm. early 1970s. Um, obviously, Happy Days ran for a long time. Mm. But this... Uh, you had Grease. There was the Grease yeah, musical. There totally. was American Graffiti. And these were all things that like had just hadn't existed before. No, there, there, there really wasn't. I mean, there was... In the 60s, there was kind of a playful use of quite old imagery. Like, you know, some of the psychedelic bands would have Wild West imagery on their album covers, like Quicksilver Messenger Service or... Uh, you know, there was a kind of 
actually playing with Victorian and Edwardian imagery in a different sort of way to the Teddy Boys in quite a lot of psychedelic music. Or you might even have like a harpsichord used, but it was just part of the fun of that time. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the show is Simon Reynolds. His new book is called Retromania, Pop Culture's Addiction to Its Own Past. It follows up his studies of the post-punk movement of the 1980s and the rave movement of the 1990s to discover why the 2000s didn't have any pop music revolutions. There's an element, especially in the 1970s, that if you are looking back, you are to some extent losing something. I mean, you write a little bit in the book and I've talked about um, ELO as like the perfect example, the electric light orchestra of a band that was essentially you know, uh, attempting to recreate what the Beatles had done 10 years earlier and is perhaps the least credible rock and roll band of all time, despite their dramatic success. Well, you know, actually, I noticed a a few years ago that amongst uh, hipsters, some people were like, um, you know, sort of saying yellow were kind of cool. And they were kind of, you know, they were kind of, definitely fun and uh but there was yeah they, at the time i don't think they got any critical respect because they were so obviously aping the beatles uh in in their more the more orchestrated side of the beatles one of the things that starts to happen by the 1970s and especially happens in the 1980s is that technology enables a much less linear consumption of culture so first the 45 and then the lp mean that the music is still there even if Mm. television and radio are playing what's now Mm. those things start to pile up around these artists Mm. and they realize like oh maybe somebody's already done this thing yeah it's like yeah it's like a gradually accumulating archive although um there's a certain kind of honor to people who decide well this older kind of music is so much better than the past and i'm just going to dedicate my life to that i kind of admire that spirit you know people who you know they would dress like they were still in 1966 britain seems particularly good at you know particularly prone anyway to coming up with these things we had northern soul which is this cult that developed in the 70s mostly in the north of england based around the sound of mid-60s motown It was very much like people who, who didn't like the direction black music had gone in the 70s, which was kind of more funky and slower in tempo and grittier. Um, and, it, and they didn't like the dress either. They didn't like, you know, bell bottoms and that kind of stuff. They wanted to have this sort of 60s perfection of tight peg pants and, you know, short hair. The mod aesthetic, really. And the pills, the amphetamines that went with dancing all night to this sort of up-tempo soul music from the mid-60s. And, and, and we should say that I think one of the key elements of northern soul that that influenced or was or presaged anyway contemporary aesthetics is that it was fueled not even necessarily by you know they they weren't listening to martha and the vandellas dance in the streets the value was in the thing that was as deep in the crates as you could go which is something that has grown in importance in contemporary retro culture yeah, totally. I mean, they, they had this thing, they were, they talked about rare soul or unknowns or, you know, um, 
tracks that had actually failed in the marketplace at the time, just because there was so much music coming out of, particularly the you know the Michigan, and so much talent, you know, because of the, the traditions of church singing and black music tradition, that there were so many people who were almost as good as Martha Novellas or almost as good as The Temptations putting out these records made pretty cheaply and they still existed in the world there were loads of these sort of flop singles or sort of records that were like small regional hits and so a sort of collector culture in northern Seoul built up around these things and people even would fly to America and go to warehouses and dig for you know uh, totally unknown records even that never even got to the UK and the, the, the smaller number of copies that existed in the world of this record the, the better you know The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Simon Reynolds, wrote the book Retromania, Pop Culture's Addiction to Its Own Past. Let's talk a little bit about punk rock before we get too far into the current epic. I think punk rock is the last kind of huge seismic shift in the world of rock and roll music. It's, you know, happened in the 1970s. Uh, one of the interesting things about punk rock is that rock and roll had developed through all these different aesthetics to the point where there was, you know, prog and metal and these things that were as complex as, as uh, they were aspiring to complexity. And punk was both something entirely new and in some ways a reset. It was a reach in some ways for the birth of rock and roll. Yeah, well, in, in Retromania, I, I kind of decided to do a sort of... Uh an exercise in a way of trying to write about punk instead of seeing each uh, step forward as sort of, uh, you know, leading towards punk. I always wanted to emphasize how every person was kind of looking backwards. They were all heading towards punk, but they were kind of actually nearly all of them looking backwards. So, you know, it starts with um, there was magazine, uh, Who Put the Bomp, which uh, was a very kind of discontented with the present hated kind of progressive music, hated where rock was at in the 70s, and was very influential in formulating, you know, the ideology of punk. It was done by a guy called Greg Shaw, and it published very influential pieces by Lester Bangs that were, like, you know, attacking singer-songwriter music and attacking Jethro Tull and all this sort of progressive music and upholding a handful of groups from the 60s, like the garage punk bands like The Count Five, but also The Trogs. You know, I think there were a few current bands that they admired, these people who formulated punk as an ideology, and one of them was the Flaming Groovies, who were very, you know, mid-60s star group. Another was the Stooges. And then there was the New York Dolls. I'm looking for a kiss. So I decided to, to look at all these bands and emphasise how hung up they were in the past, you know, like the New York Dolls worked with the guy, Shadow Morton, I think it was, who produced the Shangri-Las, you know, they, there was a, a sort of real retro-y, collector-minded mentality to nearly all these people who paid the way for punk. I mean, even if you think of the Ramones wearing essentially Marlon Brando costumes... <laughs> Yeah, they seem the last people likely to have a revolution, really. They seem like, you know, nostalgic record collector types. Hey, 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 
We'll be back in a minute with critic Simon Reynolds to explore Retromania from the 80s and onward. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Simon Reynolds, has a new book called Retromania, Pop Culture's Addiction to Its Own Past. It's about the fact that in the 2000s, there really weren't any aesthetic revolutions in the world of popular music and how that came to be. I think that as the the 1980s blossomed, there was post-punk, which you have written extensively about, that was uh, about the relationship between the aesthetics of electronic music and the aesthetics of rock and roll music. And there was hip-hop, which was something that was, uh, you know, an entirely... It, it essentially took the idea of uh, looking back and said, what if we made this into an entire, entirely new and different thing? Because it was mm. a new set of aesthetics that was based on you know, tearing apart old aesthetics and putting them back in interesting ways. But at the same time, in, in, the, in the mainstream culture, I mean, I think I grew up in the 80s. I was born in 1981. I remember the, the primacy of nostalgia in that time, especially here in the United States. I mean, if you think of Ronald Reagan and Morning in America, and you think of, I, you know, I'm from San Francisco, so I think about Huey Lewis. <laughs> you know what I mean? And these are uh, Hall & Oates. But it's this first generation of musicians who never knew anything other than uh, a world in which um, everything's accessible to them via record. And things really start to change in in the mid-1980s. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that happened, um, and I got caught up in it at the time, uh, was a lot of the people who'd gone through the whole punk, post-punk new wave you know thing uh suddenly a lot of the ideas seem exhausted and, and we a lot of us it seemed to happen simultaneously started listening to 60s music i can remember like you know hearing the birds for the first time and, and hearing love's forever changes and it being a real revelation and then within a few years um you started to get groups like the jesus and mary chain who you know had listened to the Velvet underground and primal scream who had listened to Loves forever changes. Even like pops, like number one all time autodidactic, uh, you know, self directed guy, Prince made essentially a 60s record. In oh, like yeah, around 86 the world. Yeah. Or... It, was, it was across the world. Like in the mainstream, it tended to be more like Motown and Old Soul that would get copied. Like Phil Collins did uh, a cover of that Supreme song. In some weird way, that was a kind of uh, unconscious resistance to the 80s. Because, you know, Reagan and Thatcher were very anti the 60s. In part, it feels like people are looking back at Motown as the final era of undifferentiated pop music. 
that that, Motown, every, that everybody likes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That that Motown represents, despite the fact that it means a very different thing for uh, middle class and upper middle class white people, it means for black people because uh, black people were still having a few troubles in the mid nineteen sixties in the United States. But it represents, especially for those those people who were in in that you know yuppie uh, baby boomer era. Those people, it means like, oh, that was a perfect time when we were all together. And then, you know, as soon as 1972 hits and there's FM rock radio and, and yeah. urban radio, that all falls apart. And it's very optimistic. I mean, I think um, probably for black people, Motown represents an era when, when black performers were extremely visible and looking very stylish and they were just running the charts. And, you know, it's, it has a, that, that sort of era of music was always like the, the soundtrack songs. Um, and then... A, bit later by the by the 90s you started to get actually disco would be on film soundtracks as a sort of you know a, a similar kind of music that everybody liked positive it's the sound of young america i'm jesse thorne my guest on the show is simon reynolds his new book is called retromania pop culture's addiction to its own past it follows up his studies of the post-punk movement of the 1980s and the rave movement of the 1990s to discover why the 2000s didn't have any pop music revolutions. The 1990s great revolution that you uh, write about and have written about, I mean, you wrote an entire book about it, is electronic dance music and rave culture. And I think it's interesting that, like a lot of this story, this is something that is technologically driven. I mean, technology is such a big part of the aesthetics of popular music since the 1950s, if or since the 1940s, I mean, since crooners, you know, yeah. like the crooner well, explosion yeah. came from microphones. Totally, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then all, all the way through, you know, like the the wall of sound came from having reverb rooms or whatever. You know what I mean? And that technological explosion ended at the end of the 1990s. There's There's an era where we all got to the point where everyone has access to multi-track digital recording but once rap producers started using pro tools instead of an sp1200 or whatever there there haven't been any big technological changes i think you're right i mean i'm I'm not um an expert on music technology but i've been you know I've, i was scratching my head trying to think of what had been the last breakthrough and i guess i think the difference now is that you know these machines and and platforms or whatever get better and better don't they but it's it's more just an increase in the facility you know it's not enabling them to do totally new things but the, you know the one thing that does seem to sort of be a relatively new tool that has kind of given a sort of newish gloss to pop music in the last 10 years is auto-tune that seems to be the one last repository of the technological futurism interface you know because it, it, it is can be used quite strikingly in, in quite artificial ways do you think this is as true for the music aesthetics of uh, pop music or urban music as it is true of the music aesthetics of rock or electronic dance music? Um, well, one thing that's been noticeable with hip-hop 
recently hip hop and R&B is it, it, a lot of it sounds like you know European club music tr- trance music um, quite 90s to my ears but uh, and uh, a friend of mine uh, the journalist uh, Matt, Matt Deal was saying that's because a lot of people are just you know a lot of producers now just go with the presets that come with their gear <laughs> so they just got you know these these sounds are very easy to get to get pleasing effects that you know are going to work on a dance floor and also they um, another imperative for people to use euro sounds is that um, those kind of sounds work everywhere in the world so if you're looking to get big sales they can't just depend on appealing only to an urban American audience they want global success it's the sound of young America I'm Jesse Thorne my guest Simon Reynolds wrote the book Retromania pop culture's addiction to its own past what's the relationship between this uh, do you think and the idea of authenticity, which is so important in pop music aesthetics, especially rock aesthetics. I mean, like there's no mainstream hip hop music that self-consciously looks to the past. I mean, at this point, you could make an argument for a few Jay-Z street singles, but it's it's a very, it's not an important part of the aesthetics of um hip-hop music it's done in a much less reverential way i mean it's a kind of like a nice nod like i think there was that record california love that had you know they pulled out roger troutman to do his talk box thing sure and it was a nod to their roots but it wasn't nearly as overbearing as the way that you know were white stripes or even i mean it's not it's it's even i think in some ways different than the way that the rolling stones revered the authenticity of blues and we're trying to capture an authenticity from before which i don't think um i mean even when you know kanye west made h to the Izzo, i don't think he was trying to capture the authenticity of the jackson five no because he he feels he feels confidently he has it i think the authenticity game is always about feeling like someone else has more of it than you that you don't have it it relates a lot of it relates to white middle class people feeling kind of a little hollow in some way and they feel like someone other people are, leave, are leading realer lives than them and in the early days of rock music uh, rock and pop it used to be a real time thing so it would be like you know the Rolling Stones admiring Howling Wolf and Muddy Waters relatively recent records but now it's much more likely to be located in the past you know like Adele is a good example her big heroine is Etta James Food that I that's a long, long way in the past to look for your realness, you know. And it's very strange to, you know, to watch the, the you know, the music video awards and, you know, Adele is doing this 45-year-old style, wearing an old frock, a hand fluttering over her chest to, you know, to very signify the soul and heart and passion, what she's doing. And um, I thought things would be weirder and stranger in, in the 21st century than that. And so the trouble with that kind of pursuit of authenticity through somebody else's style is that you inevitably produce something that's false, you know, it's, it's just, it's so obviously, it doesn't seem to have anything of you in it, you know, that's the crucial difference, I think. So is this situation caused by a depleted bag of aesthetic choices? Is it caused by a growing self-conscious middle class? Where does this come from that in 2011, it seems like, at least in the world of music, especially rock and roll, pop music, 
there aren't new choices being made and instead what new choices we have are are usually illusions illusions with an a yeah it's it's a, it's a combination of factors i mean obviously one is one simple factor is that rock music pop music in the modern sense obviously you know it's accumulated quite a substantial history behind it there are decades of this stuff to draw on and be inspired by and the uh, and uh, it's very tempting for musicians to sort of find some little era that's not few if few other people are exploring it then you know you've got a little area that you can make your own the other thing is that it's more available than ever um that moment when you know broadband enabled file sharing and blogging and wikipedia and all the rest of the stuff has provided so much information to draw on there's no more linearity at all i mean the story that radio provided for example in the world of music ended five or ten years ago there is no more like this is what the hits are right now source is this a hole that we can't climb out of? Is this a spiral where we're heading towards a singularity <laughs> uh, because of these conditions that we've described that refinement will replace revolution? Or is there is there the possibility for new aesthetic revolutions? Um, I think it's not like people aren't talented anymore. It's, it's almost more like people are overpowered by the number of choices from the past they have. And it's, it's sort of, um, I think people are almost kind of, um, impressionable, you know, like kind of, you know, you, you get bombarded with all this stuff. You have to be very strong, I think, aesthetically to sort of digest it all and synthesize it into a new artistic voice. But I think there are people who can still do that. And, I'm, I'm sort of wondering whether, you know, maybe there will be some new technological breakthrough. Maybe maybe that will lead to some whole new wave of, of music making. Well, Simon, thank you so much for taking the time to be on The Sound of Young America. Oh, great. A uh, really good conversation. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our music is provided by Dan Wally. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you can download the free podcast of this and every Sound of Young America program, as well as lots of other great shows. It's all free. It's all online at MaximumFun.org. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me. My own actual email address is jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. Email me on any subject except grammar. Nobody like get grammar email. We'll see you online and next time, right here on The Sound of Young America. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.